Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. At 22, I was already watching newer, cooler artists come out every week. And I was already feeling like, you know, shit, I'm on my fourth record. What can I offer people? And that was sort of when I was like, no, you know what? I don't want this to be the part of me that just sort of stays in this one place musically forever and bores people to death. It was an interesting sort of wrestling match with my own fears of remaining stagnant that made Red the kind of uh, joyride that it ended up being. Is everything has changed? That's Taylor Swift talking about her 2012 album, Red. It was an album where she reinvented herself and manifested the Taylor we know today. Before that, she had been known as a country artist, but this album saw her branching out into pop and experimenting with genres like dubstep. It was a risk, but one worth taking. I mean, fast forward to today, and Red ranks 99th on our brand new list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. Wow, I didn't know it was in the top 100. That's very exciting news. I, I was surprised that it was Red, to be honest with you, because Red was like the first time I ever you know, ventured outside of Nashville and kind of was just like in full exploration mode of like, almost like a songwriter apprenticeship. Like I wanted to see how every producer that I admired worked and I got to on Red. So I'm really stoked to see that that's the one that's the highest on the list. Breakdown, baby. I'm Brittany Spanos, senior writer for Rolling Stone and your host for Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums, the podcast where we dig into 10 albums off our brand new list. In this episode, Taylor Swift's Red. When Red came out in 2012, Taylor Swift was already the youngest artist ever to win the Album of the Year Award at the Grammys for a 2008 album, Fearless. But it was Red that solidified her pop star domination, while also marking her as one of the best songwriters of her generation. Hello. Hi. Brittany? Hi, how are you? Sorry for the weird way I just said hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited to talk about this album. I'm so happy that you were down to do this. I'm very down to do this. Thank you for including Red in your list. That's awesome. I was actually really like heartened to see that it was Red because Red was the reason why 1989 happened. 1989 came out a couple years later and completed her full crossover from country to synth pop. This record also made our list of the 500 greatest albums, but only Red made it to the top 100. 
I love Jackson Pollock and I really do see this album as like my splatter paint album. Um, just like using all the colors and throwing it at the wall and seeing what sticks. And I really think that when the album came out, it had a lot of people that were criticizing it for its, uh, the fans make fun of me for saying this so much over the course of a couple years, but its lack of being, you know, sonically cohesive, it was absolutely not cohesive, but it was sort of a metaphor for how messy a real breakup is because this is I look back on this as like this is my only true breakup album every other album has flickers of different things but this was an album that I wrote specifically about like a <laughs> pure absolute to the core heartbreak and you do a lot of vacillating and changing when you're going through something like that so this record actually is an accurate depiction symbolically of that Taylor has never spoken publicly about who broke her heart but many have speculated that some of the most memorable lines from Red were inspired by Jake Gyllenhaal. I remember when we broke up the first time Saying this is it, I've had enough Cause like we hadn't seen each other in a month When you said you needed space What? The first songs that I wrote for the Red album are the Nashville songs, the ones that I did with Nathan Chapman. Songs like State of Grace, Stay, 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 All Too Well. Those are songs that I wrote first. And then I kind of made this journey out to LA and started working with other people. Red was sort of like a wellspring of really important relationships that I carried with me for the rest of my career. Like, you know, became best friends with Ed Sheeran. And like, he's still someone that I talk to every week. And Max Martin, who was the person who taught me more about, you know, writing than anyone I can imagine ever meeting. So it's like, this was a really important record for me in terms of like, I guess the origins of things that I carried with me. You can thank Max Martin for every pop hit you've had stuck in your head for the past two decades. He's the writer and producer behind some of the biggest selling singles by Britney Spears, NSYNC, The Weeknd, and Ariana Grande, to name a few. Taylor also worked with one of Max Martin's closest collaborators, producer Johan Schellbach. I came in and they played a track that they had made in preparation for this. And I wrote something over the track. And then I think after that, I was telling them a story about what I was going through. And then I started just like kind of singing, we are never, ever, ever. And Max was like, that's great. We're writing that. Like, we've got to write that. And then Yoan was like, and then we could be like, we, like little kids on a playground. And that was kind of the first time that I realized, like, these people think in a way that is so mystical and magical. And the way that you could hear a hook that's not really a music, it's not really musical notes. It's like a sound or these kind of pop wizards. I remember being so challenged by writing with them. And I, I remember bringing in, like, this slow, sad thing that I had written called I Knew You Were Trouble. I had originally called it Trouble. And I walked in and I was like, I don't know if we could have like some kind of really intense bass drop or something, like dubstep's really awesome. And, and they were just like, yes, absolutely. And then Shellback was like, in this verse, let's do this really, really frantic drum beat. And this was something I would never have thought of, to, to make the beat of the verse really up-tempo and then sort of kind of make the intensity drop of the chorus and then have it build back up and then have 
production explosion at the end of the chorus. It just was, it was so thrilling. Like I couldn't believe the song started where it started and then, you know, their ideas with production, they ended up kind of seeping into my brain and I started thinking the way that I would hope they would think. Like I would, I would write a verse and Max would be like, this is, you know, this many syllables. Can you shorten it and make it more succinct? But convey the same message. And I would just go off into a corner and I felt like I had like this amazing assignment. <laughs> so it was like the challenge of it was so thrilling for me. The first song that was written was All Too Well. And I it was like a day when I was just like a broken human walking into rehearsal, just feeling terrible about what was going on in my personal life. and. I walked in and I remember we had actually just hired David Cook, who is now my band leader ever since then. But it was his, I think it was his first day meeting me and I ended up sort of just playing like four chords over and over again. And the band started kicking in like Amos Heller on bass and people just started playing along with me. I think they could tell I was really going through it. And I just started singing and riffing and sort of ad-libbing this song that basically was all too well. And it started with, you know, I walked through the door with you, the air was cold. Like it literally just was that song, but it had probably seven extra verses. I walked through the door with you, the air was cold, but something about it felt like home somehow. And it included, <laughs> included the F word. And basically I remember my sound guy was like, hey, I burned a CD of that thing that you were doing in case you want it. And I was like, sure. I ended up taking it home and listening to it. And I was like, I actually really like this, but it definitely is like 10 minutes long and I need to pare it down. So I'm gonna call Liz Rose. She had this long song that, you know, story basically that she had put to music. It was pretty awesome to be part of it and help her pull out the, the pieces that put it all together. That's Liz Rose, a Nashville songwriter who had worked on some of Taylor's early hits like Teardrops on My Guitar and You Belong With Me. They reunited to work on Red. Taylor, to me, always, when we were writing, Taylor was producing it as she was writing it. I honestly believe Taylor writes a lot, picturing the whole journey of the song. She doesn't just write a song and then go, okay, well, let me go see what somebody's going to do with it. She was writing the emotion into the song when she's writing the song. Liz joined pretty early in the process, co-writing All Too Well with Taylor. And she came over and I played it for her and she was like, whoa, I love this. <laughs> so we kind of edited it and pared it down to what it is now. But that was a very um, serendipitous creation of song. Used to be a little kid with glasses in a twin size bed. And your mother's telling stories about you on the T-ball. Many people see this as one of the greatest songs that you've written, one of the greatest breakup songs. Tell me about kind of seeing that happen over the years of people gravitating towards this five-minute raw epic of getting lost upstate and dancing in refrigerator light and everything that goes through that song. I never imagined that that would happen because it wasn't a single and it didn't have a video and all these all these kind of ways that I was taught music permeated culture. I, I didn't see that happening with that song. Now, I remember playing it on the Grammys because the fans wanted to hear it a lot, but I truly didn't think that it would become something that almost like had the life of a song beyond a lot of songs that I did that had single music video kind of 
assets going on. It just really was amazing to watch. And I truly can't believe it now when I play it live and like everybody in the crowd knows every word. I'm like truly astonished by it. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things about this album for me. When I look back on it, I'm like, wow, I really didn't pick that one as being one. I thought it was too dark, too sad, too intense. <laughs> just too many things I thought, you know. So it's, it's fun when things surprise you like that. I've always been very aware of my own sort of relevancy mortality. My career started when I was 16 putting out albums. So by 22, I was already in some days feeling like old news. I, at 22, I was already watching newer, cooler artists come out every week. And I was already feeling like, you know, shit, I'm like, I, I'm on my, my fourth record. I, what can I offer people? And that was sort of when I was like, no, you know what? I want to make music with people I've never made music with before. I, I want to like learn and grow. And I don't want this to be the part of me that just sort of stays in this one place musically forever and bores people to death. Like, so it actually was an interesting sort of wrestling match with my own fears of remaining stagnant that made Red the kind of uh, joyride that it ended up being. So we were having these successful songs at pop radio, like We Are Never Getting Back Together. We had I Knew You Were Trouble, but I also had songs like Begin Again that were absolutely, completely and totally country songs. I really felt like I was standing on a state line and I had a foot on either side of the, of the borderline and I was just getting to exist in both worlds, which for me at the time was really thrilling. Do you feel like everything that has happened since wouldn't exist without Red? I do agree with that. I felt so proud and still feel so proud of my origins in Nashville. But at a certain point, I started to feel like, am I allowed to color outside the lines here? And it really was amazing on Red to realize like, oh, I'm, I'm allowed in these rooms. I'm accepted in these rooms. That was something that freed me up for a world of change and challenge and innovation. And I, and I never would have had the bravery to kind of make the full leap into pop music if I hadn't been able to do what I did with Red and to work with the people that I worked with. And I, I will always look back on it and just think, wow, that was really, that was really sort of the beginning of everything that I'm doing now. That's Taylor Swift talking about her album, Red, which ranks 99th on our brand new 500 Greatest Albums of All Time list. You can find it on our website, rollingstone.com, and in the magazine's October issue. After this short break, my Rolling Stone colleagues will join me to talk about how Red commanded our attention from the start. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. I'm Brian Hyatt. I'm a writer at Rolling Stone. Uh, I wrote a cover story about Taylor Swift back in 2012 that is somewhat, I guess, relevant to the subjects at hand. Hi, I'm Claire Schaefer. I'm a staff writer at Rolling Stone, writing about pop music and uh, country music. I'm Rob Sheffield, and I'm a writer at Rolling Stone. Rob, I guess, is our sort of resident Taylor Swift expert, whether he wants to call himself that or not. (laughs) (laughs) It's very kind. Thank you. The four of us are some of Rolling Stone's biggest Swifties and have collectively written thousands of words on Taylor over the years. We've all karaoke'd Taylor together. Claire, you you get the country aspect of what she does better than anybody. (laughs) I did grow up on country Taylor Swift. So are you each surprised that this was the Taylor album to rank the highest on our list? I'm not surprised at all that it's on the list. You know, I think that Red has had such a critical resurgence in the past few years. And I think it's well-deserved to be on the 500. You know, if we had voted on the list after Folklore had come out, you know, it's possible that we might be talking about that album here instead. But I think even still, Red is still kind of the critics' favorite album when it comes to Taylor Swift. And it's nice to see it so high up on this list. Red is one of those just cover all the bases kind of records, like Prince's Sign of the Times. It has that kind of role in in her discography. It's the record where she just shows she can do everything. It's got weepers, it's got bangers, it's got rockers, it's got tearjerkers, it's got country ballads. It's the most Prince-like album she's made and, and that's the highest compliment there is. I guess I was somewhat pleasantly surprised, although not that surprised because my understanding is the sort of non-Taylor fans picks sometimes is 1989. And I was a little bit, I might be concerned that that, in fact, I think Taylor might've said something similar, that that's the one that people latch onto who might not know a lot of the rest of her work. So it's actually really pleasing to see sort of the fans pick get the highest uh, ranking. And obviously Red was super important to Taylor's career and kind of brought her to the next level and out of Nashville and into the pop world. How do you see it fitting in culturally to music and why is it so important to to so many fans and maybe more casual Taylor listeners? I feel like Rob can knock this out of the park. <laughs> We're all waiting for Rob to talk. <laughs> I feel like anything you want Taylor to do, she does it on this album at the top of the game. So coming into this record for some people, she was strictly a country singer. This record has such amazing country ballads on it. As opposed to 1989, which was the one where she said nothing for Nashville on this one. She's got Holy Ground, which is just her best 80s rock and roll song. That's the best Billy Idol song ever. And it isn't even like a Billy Idol song officially, but it's just the album where anything she does, it's the best example of her doing it. I know that at least two of us put Red on our personal ballots for 500 Greatest Albums, but I'm wondering why you think that culturally people have been more reticent to respect Taylor as an artist, as a as a songwriter. I mean, that's a, a real layup. It's uh, sexism and reverse ageism. I think that's the answer. <laughs> that's it. I think it's just confusion about 
who she is. Also, a prejudice against her audience. This is something that all of you have talked about from time to time. It's the assumption that someone whose most fervent fans are teenage girls, there's an assumption that, well, there must be something trivial about the music. And that is also an, a, a deeply incorrect and, and sexist assumption. Yeah, I think the kind of critical consensus around Taylor has shifted along with the sort of recognition of artists like Fiona Apple or, you know, as Brian was saying, kind of the recognition that teen girls often are kind of the first wave of culture when it comes to, you know, what's going to be renowned in the next 10 or 20 or 30 years. I mean, the Beatles are the most classic example of that. But I think Taylor is another where it's just like, you can recognize her journey as a songwriter when you actually look back at her work and kind of look in retrospect and be like, oh yeah, like she was actually not only extremely precocious for her age when she started out 17, but like she was just building up to something even greater. And I think Red is kind of the perfect transition point. I think why it's the album that people keep coming back to is because it is sort of that transition from teen country star to like fully fledged songwriter and fully in control of her genre. Yeah, and it's interesting to think about to come off an album where she had completely penned every single song by herself and then to to make this sort of reverse maturity transition with an album like Red. What what does that sort of prove to the world of who Taylor is as an artist? Well, Speak Now was sort of interesting because that was her like album where she was like, oh, I'm going to write every single one of these songs by myself just to prove that I can be a songwriter. And it's like she kind of mastered that sort of singer-songwriter realm. And then all of a sudden she's like, oh, no, I'm going to put like a dubstep track on the next one or I'm going to like go in all these different genre directions. And like, obviously, it wasn't her full-fledged pop moment because that would come with 1989, but it is... Another sort of like out of left field, like, why did you decide to try something different when you were so good at what you were doing before? But I think that just speaks to like how much of a student of pop music she is and how much she wants to try everything and like be the best at everything. And it's just fun to see her do that on Red and like hear her really try this out. Even when it doesn't work totally, it's shocking like how well she was able to transition and like how many good just pop moments there are on this album. So weird to think now that there was a time when everybody thought Fearless was the greatest album she was ever going to make. It seemed like there was no possible way she could top that one. Fearless, her second album when she was just 19, and she's singing to 15-year-olds on that album. She's not far past 15 herself at that point. But Fearless was so stunningly mature, a flawless album, it seemed like that was a career-capping triumph. And that was just her second album. She was still a teenager. With every album since then, she just exploded way beyond what anybody previously thought possible. But Red is the one where she demonstrated every corner of the music world. I'm going to lay some kind of claim to it. So, Brian, you interviewed Taylor right before she released Red. What stuck with you from your time with her? So the first thing that I always think about is that I had not heard most of the album, not only when I interviewed her, but even by the time the story was published. I think I only heard maybe four or five songs maximum. It makes Red all the more tantalizing for me in the years afterwards, because there's always that album I wasn't allowed <laughs> to hear at the time. It's very strange. It's not like it was there was some weakness in the album. Why they didn't want me to hear it, I will never, ever, ever understand. For all the greatness of the album, she wasn't that into, at that point, talking about 
some of the songwriting stuff necessarily. I think she maybe wanted to pull a curtain over that or leave a certain amount of mystery. But you asked a very big question, what do I remember? I mean, of course, I remember, and I guess Taylor remembers the fact that we got into two car accidents in one day while we reported the story. That's hard to, to forget. And uh, Taylor would like me to say that the first one, the minor one, was her fault. She got distracted and was backing up and uh, bumped into her bass player's car. And she really definitely freaked out over that. The second one, she would like me to say, was not her fault. In fact, she demonstrated magnificent defensive driving skills. It was very bizarre that this happened the same day. And remains to this day one of the the scariest things that's happened to me in a car, even without Taylor Swift in it. Uh, there was a, a, a person uh, driving like they had just robbed a bank or something, almost like destroyed her car, like just zoomed through an intersection the wrong way. But luckily, we were fine. And it, in the end, what it ended up being is this metaphor for everything was going so well and she had this sense that something was going to happen to knock her off course. And she was, as we know, deeply right about that. In 2012, this was someone who had been basically on a path of success to success. Everything was going great and not just in her career so far, but really in her life so far. She had lived a tremendously charmed life and Taylor was deeply aware of that. She had this feeling of... She was going to get in trouble somehow, that people were going to turn on her. Yeah, I mean, especially with anyone who is positioned as America's sweetheart, there's always the idea of the downfall of being overexposed in that capacity. There was a lot of overexposure after 1989. There was a, a feud with Kanye that began with the 2009 VMAs. They kind of made up later. Everything kind of fell apart with his song Famous and a lot of things have happened since then politically, too, where there was a lot of wanting to hear from Taylor, wanting to know where she stood in the 2016 election. And again, sort of her coming out of her own to to speak up on issues that matter to her, that matter to her listeners, that matter to you know anyone who's been following her for a really long time and also broke through a lot of the America's sweetheart elements and stereotypes that kind of kept her from being able to live that honestly about how she felt about things outside of her own relationships with people and her own sort of experience growing up and maturing. I think the real obstacle that Taylor faced when she got to be the level of fame that she did after Red and after 1989, especially with the election. And, you know, she talks about this in her documentary that just came out earlier this year, too. But it's, you know, wanting to please everyone in that way that country stars really have wanted to do since, you know, post the Dixie Chicks. She talks about that in the documentary as well, you know, not wanting to get canceled for saying anything too political or saying anything out of line. But then that coming up against this moment in history, in our political history, where everyone with the platform was expected to say something and to take a stance. And it just it went against everything she had been taught in her career. Again, that kind of wanting to please everyone, which I don't think she's totally lost, but I think now is kind of she she's more careful about, you know, what she wants to present to the world. And like, I think post reputation, post lover, like we're seeing a new side of Taylor and that's really exciting. But I think she was still trying to figure that out around Red. And I think that I think her fears were well founded because that's what every pop star faces like even now. So, Brian, you spoke with her last year as well. What's the difference between Taylor then and now? And does she carry those same fears that you outlined in the story of this all coming, crashing down at any point? Well, it's more that she recognized that 
just as we do, just as anyone can, that those fears that she had at that time did come true. It literally was very close to what she foresaw in some ways. But I think the most important thing was that I was talking to someone who had lived through some of her worst fears and had moved beyond it. And I also was talking to someone who was, you know, a, a, a real grown-up. It had been a long time. It had been eight years. She, she grew up a lot. She always was a, a very mature person, but she was, you know, around 30. And so this was, you know, I was talking to <laughs> someone else who was at least as adult as me, probably definitely more, actually, I would say. Uh, but also very much the same and very much, I think, something that I wrote in the intro to that piece, the second piece, is this idea of still zero poker face. Like, her emotions are so close to the surface in just her daily existence. And I, I think that does tie into her songwriting. It ties into why she can be a great screen presence. It ties into what everyone thought was the phony, you know, surprise face thing, which is actually totally real. That's just how she is. Yeah, and I love that quote that's in the cover story where you said, Swift may just experience life a little more intensely than the rest of us, which is one reason her songs can hit so hard. Along with the ache in her voice and her instinct for the minor fall and the major lift, her songs sneak past our emotional defenses because she has so few of them. I mean, you only heard about five songs from the album, but can you tell me a little bit of your own listening experience of Taylor before you got to meet her? That was deeply autobiographical as far as the effect her songs had on me. I always found from the beginning, or you know, I probably didn't, it probably took me until the second album to really start seriously listening to her. But what I found and what anyone should have found who was overcoming any prejudice they might have had against you know, music that might seem like it was for teenage girls, which I, I can't say is a prejudice I've ever particularly had, but I always found everything deeply affecting because there's just something where it slipped past any cynicism you might have, any cynicism you might have, not even about her specifically, but about, your hey, you're, here you are, an, an adult listening to songs about someone whose experience is now far afield from your own. It, it slips past that armor of your cynicism and slams directly into your heart. And I, I think that's something she's, always had. And that's something ineffable. That's something you can't really quantify or, or figure out. She could do it then and she could do it now. And I think that's one of the uh, the core things. I mean, I mean one, one thing that really, the, the example I use in the piece is this very obscure song, uh, Ronin, that she had at the time that she debuted at this cancer benefit. And that had me absolutely, like literally sobbing, as did true stories they tell in the piece, like everyone in this auditorium, including like grizzled teamsters, her mom, everybody. And I, and to me, that augured a broader kind of songwriting for her, which I think she's she has now fulfilled. I knew she was going to break out of her own narrative whenever she wanted and could do it. So yeah, it was all there. You know, like everything that she's that's happened to her since and that she's done since was evident in her music and in her person at that time, I would say. What makes this album so particularly effective for me is that she never loses that intimate, brutally honest nature of her songwriting, even while kind of taking it a step further and transitioning genres and trying out new things musically. Meanwhile, she's becoming this massive celebrity, dating other massive celebrities. And as someone who had always kind of written and expressed her personal life so honestly in her lyrics, it became a, an act of decoding all of that. With that in mind, what are some of the most biting lyrics on her One True Breakup album? I feel like Rob should go first on this one, too. Well, biting is one of the things that she does on this album. It's also that kind of runs the whole range that she has emotionally from State of Grace begins with this majestic 
really romantic song and then it ends with uh, a breakup and then a post breakup first date, which is just an all time Taylor tearjerker last songs, a tradition that she has always kept going. But in terms of nasty breakup song, you can't really top. We are never, ever, 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 ever getting back together, featuring a completely unnamed celebrity male target who I'm sure none of us could even imagine who this person might be or whose sister might happen to have a scarf of his maybe somewhere on an end table in her house. But we are never getting back together such a fantastically nasty, acerbic breakup song that nonetheless extremely empathetic. She acknowledges that he has friends and that her friends will still talk to his friends and that they will still continue on in this world, but they're never getting back together. It even has that wonderful little dialogue part where she just sighs, this is exhausting. I love the crescendo of All Too Well because it really encapsulates every breakup ever where she's like, you call me up again just to break me like a promise so casually cruel in the name of being honest. Like it's such a good line. And you know, it's like a five minute song that originally was like 15 minutes. And you know, the entire thing is so biting, but she still manages to find like one small portion to just like encapsulate the whole thing in a line. I find that such good songwriting. Also a line about really bad driving in that song, which, you know, goes back to her tendency to get in car crashes when reporters <laughs> from Rolling Stone are in the car. Obviously, we're all still trying to unpack the lyrics of Red, but what are some of your favorite underrated elements of the album? I think the humor of the album is very easy, very easily lost. I think mainly that's partly the misogyny that we've been talking about, that people underrate how self-aware she's always been as a songwriter from her very first album. This girl was born self-aware. And she was born with a very healthy sense of humor about herself. It's funny that Red is an album where even now the humor of it gets very lost. But as always, she's funniest when she's making herself the target of the joke. My favorite punchline on the album, just in terms of humor, is Holy Ground. She's talking about how she's obsessed with this guy. Oh my gosh, they have such a cosmic connection. They know each other so well. They have so many private jokes in common. And then she pauses for a breath and says, and that was the first day. It's like, yeah, I believe you, that was the first day. But Taylor is very aware of the comedy involved in being somebody as hyper-emotional as Taylor Swift. In those days, she would always begin her live show by saying, my name is Taylor, I write songs about feelings, I'm told I have a lot of feelings. And part of what I love about the album is her sense of humor about that. Yeah, I was going to bring up that what you just said, Rob, because I remember you wrote about it in your ranking of Taylor's songs, and it's just the best punchline ever. I think also Begin Again is kind of this like dark humor about it, because it's almost like she's saying like, oh, this relationship didn't go well, but I'm just going to do the same thing all over again. And I'm going to have, you know, the time of my life all over again. It really is just, you know, the same self-awareness that we would later hear kind of on full display in blank space or reputation, like any of the songs from there. And she's kind of teasing it out on this album. Totally. And Claire, that element of her people pleasing in her personality that you were talking about before, that's so funny in, in Begin Again, where she's totally blown away that this person she's on a date with actually holds a chair for her. Just really entry-level manners are just devastating to her. And she realizes this. It's, it's sort of a beautiful sort of joke about that sort of people-pleasing aspect of her personality. It's, it's a heartbreaker of a song. Just a heartbreaker. I mean, I would just say it's kind of the cliche about the album, but all the different 
things that are on the album, all the different genres, all the different approaches, I think just get more impressive as the years go by. It doesn't feel like a lot of artists have the the guts or the chops to take out that many things on a, on a single album right now. And so it just... It just kind of blows me away. And it works. And it's one of the few 19-track albums to be a truly great album. I think generally albums that long tend to lose focus and just be, you know, flat out too long. But I I think it's one of the only exemplars of the super long album that is a super great album. Well, thank you all for joining me to talk about Taylor Swift's Red, which ranks 99th on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time. The complete list can be found on our website, rollingstone.com, and the magazine's October issue. I'm Brittany Spanos. This is Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums. Next week, we'll look back on Tom Petty's Wildflowers. Executive producers are Christian Horde, Nathan Brackett, and Gus Winner. It's produced by Emrys Eller, Michelle Lands, and me. Our senior producer is Jasmine Morris. Megan McBride is our production manager. Bridget Shelsey is our production assistant. Fact-checking by Jonathan Bernstein. Supervising executives for Amazon Music are Raymond Roker, Kinton Brombot, and Ryan Reddington. And for Rolling Stone, Jason Fine. And remember, you can find this podcast exclusively on Amazon Music, on the web or in the mobile app, or on any Echo device. I have missed these Friday night dinners. Here, welcome to Harvey Graw. At these family dinners, delicious, everyone. Dysfunction is served. I can't have you all messing things up for my entire adult life. Oh, I'm sorry. Do we embarrass you? Jump, jump, jump. It's already better than I dared to dream. They're extra. Let the wild rumpus start! And they're embarrassing. We know how hard it is to move on from the first girl that you ever slept with. Not the first girl who I ever slept with. Yeah, 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 right. You're a regular lady killer. I thought you said it was going to be boring here tonight. No! I really hope it would be. But they couldn't love each other more. Surprise! Mom and Dad being totally normal. Wow. So, dinner next Friday, everyone? Wouldn't miss for the world. Dinner with the Parents, Season 1. Stream free, only on Freebie.